is what I'm going to do is put up on the board some things that people want me to cover. And that way, hopefully, most people get a chance to ask something. Um, I request that until I come around to you again, you ask one thing. You may find that someone else also asks what you may also want to ask. Uh, usually that's what happens. If you don't have a particular question or if uh, what you were here to go over again is already on the board, then you can just say pass. All right? So I'll start here. Next to Jennifer. You too. Either of you. She's already said no. Okay. No? In the red? CRISPR? Anyone in the top? Yeah. You want to email me? Uh, that's the Maladis Party shuttle. Elongation of what? 
Can you guys shut loud? I can't. I can't hear. Uh, elongation thing with lacquer presser. The elongation cycle of what? Translation. Translation. Okay, which one? Elongation cycle or lacquer presser? Well, you only get to ask a second question when everyone gets to ask a second question. Okay. If we have time, after everyone's had a chance to get ask a question, we'll come back. I'm going to go through these first, all right, so that we get we get busy. So the first question is on Q cycle, which is always a popular one. So we come into Q cycle with this idea that um, for both complex one and complex two, you're going to be taking two electrons off. So NADH with an NADH has two electrons on it. And so, as NADH is converted to NAD+, two electrons are going to be passed into complex one. Those two electrons are going to join with two protons, and they're going to form a reduced coenzyme Q. And we talked a little bit about coenzyme Q, right? So this is basically the, the, the functional bit, the, the, the business end of coenzyme Q, the part that's actually taking the electrons. Okay? It's got this ubiquinone, in which there's these two ketone groups. And then you're going to put on your first electron and make this semiquinone radical. So you reduced one of the two sides. And you put on an uh, electron and a second proton, and now you've got this fully reduced um, ubiquinol. Complex 2 is going to do something similar. It's going to take two electrons from FADH2 and also put them on a coenzyme Q, the difference being we're not going to pump any protons across when we do that. But the end result of both complex 1 and complex 2 is you've got this coenzyme Q that's taken two electrons, either from NADH or from FADH2. So we want to eventually pass those on to complex 4. In, so up in here, cytochrome C, this, right, so this pat, cytochrome C is here at the end of complex three, and then that cytochrome C in complex three is going to eventually pass them on to um, cytochrome A in, in complex four. The problem with it, that is when you get up here and you're passing electrons into cytochrome C and then subsequently on cytochrome A, QH2 has two electrons on it, but um, these cytochromes only take one. Yeah. Um, I think one, I'm not sure either answer is correct. 
the question is, is this a, is this a time lapse or is this two different cytochromes? I think, I think it could be the same cytochrome, but it's not necessarily the same cytochrome. Do you know what I mean? You're going to have complex three that is in its completely non-reduced or oxidized form. You're going to have cytochrome, you're going to have complex three that has accepted its first QH2. And you've got cytochrome C that's accepting its second QH2, at which point it's going to become oxidized again because it's going to pass those electrons on. This, you, you make a, a, a cytochrome, a, a complex three that is half reduced, and then, and this is what a complex three that is half reduced looks like, and it may or may not be the same one. There's more than one complex three in the mitochondrial membrane. Okay, so. So we're going to, basically we're going to try to strategize a way to take two electrons off of QH2 and pass them on one at a time through complex three and a complex four. So to do that, we've basically got two electron acceptors in complex three, okay? When QH2 gives off its electrons, it's going to give one electron, basically it's going to put those two electrons down two funnels that are found in complex three. One of those two funnels is going to give an electron to cytochrome C, which is going to be passed on to complex four and cytochrome A. So that's the one we care about, okay? The other complex, the other funnel for the second electron, it's almost as if it's like a ramp on the highway that just turns around and comes back in again. It's going to it's going to come around and it's going to basically remake another QH2 so that we can bring, in, bring it in again and not, not right away. The second QH2 has to do that, to be there, to be able for that to happen. So what happens is, like another way of drawing it, I guess, is you've got your two electrons and they're coming from NADH or FADH. These are two electrons on QH2, right? One electron is going to eventually go to cytochrome C, cytochrome A, right? The other electron is going to be passed on to basically an electron holder, the cytochrome B. And then when a second QH2 comes in, it's one electron is going to go the same way. And the second electron is going to join with this electron that was being kind of place held on cytochrome B to come back and remake QH2. Right? That's just general, that's the general idea. Right? So you get a, by going through the cycle twice, your net result is one QH2 sent completely to cytochrome C slash cytochrome A in complex four, and one QH2 you get back. A little bit like, uh, I don't know, conceptually speaking, we talked last class about ketone bodies. We needed to take two acetyl-CoA's and then a third acetyl-CoA. So we took three acetyl-CoA's, but we got one back. And in the end, we'd made our, our four carbon compounds. So we used up 
We used up three acetyl-CoA's, but we got one back, so the net is two. We've kind of used two QH2's. You need two QH2's to do this, but since you get one back, then if you don't have two QH2's, it won't work. But you get one back, and so it's, the net is one that you've kind of used. So it's just a roundabout way of trying to get your two-electron donor into a one-electron acceptor. Yeah. You reduce two cytochromes, but sequentially, what, you reduce one with the QH2 that goes through, and you reduce it, another cytochrome A, potentially, because that's on complex four, right? A second cytochrome A when the second QH2 goes through. So the end result is two electrons that get passed to complex four, one after the other, not together. These two electrons come in together, but the ones that get passed on to complex four are done one after the other. Make sense? If someone has a question about Q cycle over the course of the review session to build on this again, then we'll go over it. But I'm not going to start Q cycle from scratch again. This is kind of the point. The reason I do this is so that people that come in for the last half hour, the people who have been here for the whole time, they don't have to listen to the same thing over and over again when they've probably got other questions. Okay, so again, the concept of the malate aspartate shuttle is um, most of the NADH we make when we're reducing, sorry, when we're oxidizing glucose through glycolysis and Krebs cycle, most of the NADH that's made is in Krebs cycle, right? And Krebs cycle happens in the mitochondria. And the mitochondria is where NADH is going to get put into the electron transport chain. So that's all fine. There's no issue for that NADH that's made, those NADHs that are made during, during citric acid cycle. The problem is that, if you recall, there was one step of glycolysis where you make an NADH. Okay? But glycolysis takes place in the cytoplasm. So the question then becomes, how do we get, if, if the place where we metabolize the NADH is in the mitochondria, that's where NADH enters complex one, when it's in the matrix, we need to get an NADH from the cytoplasm, the NADH that's made during glycolysis, unless we want to ferment it, and that's not very efficient, it's much better to put it through citric acid cycle. We want to take that NADH that was made in the cytoplasm and import it, so to speak, into the mitochondria. We can't import NADH into the mitochondria directly, though. The mitochondria does not have a channel or a pore that NADH moves across. That would be bad, because you want all the NADH you make in the mitochondria to go into citric acid cycle in the mitochondria. So we just need a way to kind of maybe, what if we could not get NADH across, but just get its electrons across? Well, that's effectively what kind of happens here. Here's that NADH. The whole point of this complicated slide is to get this red NADH here onto this side. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to do the reverse last step 
of citric acid cycle. If you remember, the last step of citric acid cycle is the oxidation of malate into um, oxaloacetate. Well, we're going to um, basically redu um, reduce oxaloacetate back into malate. And we're going to, when we went this way, we got an NADH. Well, we're going to go backwards, so we're going to burn an NADH. We're going to take an NADH and convert it to NAD. So its electrons are put on oxaloacetate to make malate. Okay? So this is malate dehydrogenase. Makes sense, right? So basically, we take oxaloacetate, we convert to malate. There is a malate transporter. Malate has a pore on the mitochondrial membrane. It's this malate alpha-ketoglutarate transporter. So at that point, malate gets moved into the mitochondria. And now we just do the last step of citric acid cycle. Malate dehydrogenase does the flip reaction. It takes malate and it converts to oxaloacetate. And so when we do the flip reaction, basically what we've done is we've moved an NADH, the sum reaction is we move an NADH from the cytoplasm to the matrix. But the problem is that we've also moved effectively an oxaloacetate from the cytoplasm to the matrix. Right? If we just stopped here, then all the oxaloacetate you have in the cytoplasm would disappear, and now you wouldn't have the ability to, to do this anymore. So we've got to get that carbon skeleton back out again. The way that carbon skeleton is, so this is an oxidation reduction reaction to move the NADH. We're going to do a different reaction to get the carbon skeleton back out. We're going to do basically an amino transferase reaction, like what we covered in the amino acids lecture. We're going to take oxaloacetate, and oxaloacetate has the carbon skeleton of aspartic acid. So we're going to take an amino group from glutamic acid, and put it on oxaloacetate to make aspartic acid, to make aspartate, right? Using this aspartate amino transferase. And this is the standard enzyme we talked about. It's an amino transferase. So it's taking the NH3, not the amido group of glutamine. Glutamic acid has only one amino group, right? It has only one nitrogen. It's the one that every amino acid has, right? The amino group. The amino group gets passed by this aspartate amino transferase oxaloacetate to make aspartic acid, the carbon skeleton of glutamic acid is alpha-ketoglutarate. So when you do that, when you take that amino group off of, of, off of glutamic acid, you make alpha-ketoglutarate. Alpha-ketoglutarate can go the other way through the transporter, right? So it comes basically back out again, right? Aspartate also gets transported across the mitochondrial membrane. We're going to take that amino group on aspartic acid in the cytoplasm and put it back onto alpha-ketoglutarate to remake glutamic acid. Okay. So we've basically moved a carbon skeleton across as well as the electrons across. The electrons were moved across using a redox reaction, and the carbon skeleton was moved across using an amino transferase reaction. And now, in theory, you have what you need. When you deaminated aspartate, you regenerated the oxaloacetate. Okay. So these can all just basically spin in relation to one another to basically regenerate everything you started with, the net being moving an NADH across the membrane. Now this way of doing it, and we got a little bit into this last table here. So in general, an NADH works out to two and a half ATPs, right? So two NADHs should give you five ATPs. If we, do the if we get the cytosolic NADH, the two cytosolic NADHs from glycolysis into the mitochondria using the malate aspartate shuttle, we get 
two and a half ATPs per NADH or five ATPs. Okay. There's another shuttle we didn't talk about. That's why this it says three or five here. We didn't talk about it, so I don't really expect you to understand. You don't have to know the other shuttle, except that the other shuttle uses for each ATP that crosses, it burns an ATP. For each NA, sorry, for each NADH that crosses, it burns an ATP. So of the five you get from the two NADHs that come across, you lose one for each NADH that comes across, meaning two. You lose two ATPs to do that. So it's more efficient to use the malate spartate shuttle than it is to use the other one we didn't cover. But that's why it says three or five. Any more questions on that? Reaction seven. Okay, so what's the question more specifically? <laughs> if there was an NDH here, I'd I know. Um, it's not clear to me in the classic way we assign redox states. We classically assign redox states based on the number of bonds of carbon to oxygen, which has not changed here. Right? 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate, that carboxylic acid carbon has three bonds to oxygen. It's basically almost completely oxidized. The only way further it could go is to become CO2. And in 3-phosphoglycerate, it's still three bonds to oxygen. So it's not clear to me that there is a change in redox state, although a chemist might correct me. Um, the other clue that I hope I'm right is that the enzyme's not considered a dehydrogenase. If it was a redox reaction, then this wouldn't be done by a kinase. It might be done by a... Now, sometimes you do a kinase reaction at the same time as a redox reaction, and then you don't necessarily know which way to call it. But it doesn't seem like that's happening here. So I'm not, it's not clear to me that there is a change in redox state. No. Yeah. What's the reverse of hydrolysis? I mean, I guess you call that ATP synthesis or phosphorylation, I guess, in the context. This is a kinase. This is a kinase that is phosphorylating ADP, which is weird. But that's what we usually mean when we're talking about a substrate level phosphorylation. The recipient of the phosphate is ADP, so you make ATP. But we don't consider ATP synthase really a kinase. In a way, I guess in that, in that context it is. We'll usually talk about ATP synthase as um, it's, not, it's not necessarily considered that way. This idea of substrate level phosphorylation, you're directly making an ATP by taking the phosphate off of something, off of a substrate, off of a metabolite, 
Whereas I think for ATP synthase, it's more along the thoughts of an ADP and a phosphate floating around, and they're smushed together. Yeah. Why is it so for the malodysplastic shell? Why are we always using glutamate? It's not clear to me that um, we would necessarily have to. I think it may have something to do with. So the question is, why is it always glutamate here? In theory, you probably could use any amino acid with the following caveats. Number one, there has to be a transporter for that other amino acid across the membranes. If there's not a transporter, then that won't make sense. Number two, I expect the reason why it's glutamate is because it's so abundant. I mean, we talked a little bit about how glutamate and glutamine are your kind of your nit ATP is your phosphorus or energy currency, quote unquote, and glutamine and glutamate are often your nitrogen currency. You have high, high store, stores of glutamic acid. Not necessarily because glutamic acid is so important as an amino acid for making proteins, but because it is this kind of repository for nitrogen. So it might just be, it might not necessarily always be glutamate, but it ends up kind of always being glu be glutamate because it's just the one that you have the most of. But even if it wasn't glutamate, let's say it was pyruvate and alanine, that's fine as long as there's a pore across the membrane to accept those, for which I think there is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Certainly glutamate works, but if you had a pyruvate alanine antiport system, that would also in theory work. If pyruvate and alanine, but both have to have a port to go across, both the carbon skeleton and the aminated carbon skeleton. Okay, so to, before we get into fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, you have to understand that it is a, fructose 2,6-phosphate is, we talked about cyclic AMP a little bit, this idea that cyclic AMP is the second messenger molecule that controls kind of the cell starving. Its synthesis by adenylate cyclase is going to be in response to a starvation signal like glucagon. 
that, so that idea of a metabolite that's made to be kind of a messenger for a cis signal is something that also has importance with respect to fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. Fructose 2,6-bisphosphate is not going to be made into a pyruvate. Fructose 2,6-bisphosphate is a signaling molecule, okay? It's a sensor for how things are going. Fructose 1,6-bisphosphate is going to, so the conversion of fructose 6-phosphate into fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, that's done by phosphofructokinase 1. So PFK1 is this enzyme that's going to convert fructose 6-phosphate into fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. And this is one of the steps of glycolysis. And it is opposed by this phosphofructokinase. This is one of the steps that, this is one of the, this is basically kind of showing you the reversible steps that occur on the right-hand side in, glucon in glycolysis and in the left-hand side in gluconeogenesis, right? Phospho, um, Fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase, sorry, I was talking about fructose, this one on the wrong side. This is phosphofructokinase. This is fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase. Fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase does the reverse reaction. It takes fructose 1,6-bisphosphate and it uh, hydrolyzes it into fructose 6-phosphate. Is it the exact opposite reaction as phosphofructokinase? No. When you take fructose 6-phosphate to make fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, phosphofructokinase, takes an ATP and takes a phosphate off of ATP and puts it on a fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. But when it goes the back reaction, fructose 1,6-bisphosphate does not take the phosphate that comes off and put it on ADP to make ATP again, right? So it's not exactly the exact same reaction. It just hydrolyzes the phosphate off. So a phosphate hydrolysis is very exergonic. It's easy. It's, it's, that's very favored. And so when you're doing, when you're talking about the reversibility of these reactions in glycolysis versus gluconeogenesis, this step is not reversible. It's not done the same way. You burn an ATP to ADP going down, and you burn, so to speak, a fructose 1,6-bisphosphate into fructose 6-phosphate going up. You just lose that phosphate. You don't get an ATP back. The one of the things that I want to point out is that you know, these reactions are controlled. They're, they're, they're um, favored or not favored by the allosteric regulation of several metabolites, right? So if there's high, uh, if there's low ATP levels, well, that's going to favor phosphofructokinase. It's going to be more active. If there's high AMP levels, Right? AMP meaning there's not a lot of ATP in the cell. Sorry, I have that backwards. High ATP levels means you don't want to make more ATP, right? You've got all you need. So you don't want to be burning glucose in the glycolysis. You want to be making glucose. And the flip of that is if you've got high AMP levels, meaning your ATP stores are low, you want to be burning glucose. You want to be making ATP. So AMP will bind this and activate it. Uh, on the other hand, AMP will inactivate the uh, phosphatase, right? So it makes sense to kind of have these reciprocal metabolites turning on or turning off each path. And fructose 2,6-bisphosphate does the same thing, except fructose 2,6-phosphate is more of a signaling molecule that's responding to insulin or glucagon. So it's integrating it a little bit from the, that hormonal level. So how does that work? 
So this is a little bit what I talked about. This is PFK1 activity. This is uh, the activity of the enzyme in low ATP versus high ATP. When you have low ATP levels, the enzyme's very active because you want to be making. So there's parts of the enzyme that bind ATP and, and control its activity. When there's high ATP, the enzyme is very active because you want to be making ATP. So you want to be breaking glucose down in the pyruvate down the road. Uh, if there's high ATP, the enzyme is inactivated. And so this is basically is, we want to talk a little bit about this idea of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate doing the same thing. So this is, again, the reaction that's promoted by PFK1, fructose 6-phosphate plus ATP into fructose 1,6-bisphosphate and ADP. It is inhibited by ATP. It's enhanced by AMP or ADP. It's also enhanced by fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. So, so what is that? How does that work? So the enzyme that makes fructose 2,6-bisphosphate is called PFK2. So PFK1, so this is a different enzyme. PFK1 makes fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, and PFK2 makes fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. And fructose 2,6-bisphosphate promotes this reaction. Okay? So we want fructose 2,6-bisphosphate to, to be synthesized in times when we want to be making ATP. So basically, how do we control that? Well, similar to PFK1 and fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase, there's also PFK2 and fructose 2,6-bisphosphatase, or FBPase2. So that's going to convert these two things. And so what we're, the real question we're asking then is, how are PFK2 and the fructose FBPase2 controlled with respect to insulin and glucagon levels? Right? So let me make sure I get this right here. So here's our FK, PFK2 and our FBPase2, and they flip between being activated or inactivated. Okay? The protein that phosphorylates this is cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase. Right? So this is related to cyclic AMP levels, and if we remember just from last class, when there's high glucagon levels, adenylate cyclase makes cyclic AMP. So when cyclic AMP levels are high, this cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase, protein kinase A it's called, is going to take ATP and it's going to phosphorylate this enzyme, this PFK2 FBPase2. Okay. This one enzyme does both reactions, the forward and reverse reaction on different kind of halves of the enzyme. When it's phosphorylated, the phosphatase is active and the kinase is off. On the other hand, you've got insulin, what will take this phosphate off, and now the phosphatase will be inactive and the PFK2 will be active. Okay? So let's, the way I just explained it, going this way, we're going to basically go, we're going to start with insulin and go backwards now. See if that makes sense. Okay. So we have just had a meal. Uh, glucose levels are high in the bloodstream, insulin levels go up. What happens is, as a result of insulin levels being high, this phosphoprotein phosphatase that's going to take this phosphate off of PFK2 is going to become activated. And this is the form of PFK2 that is going to be abundant. 
the, the PFK2 where the kinase is active and the phosphatase is off. Well, if this is on and this is off, what's going to happen? Fructose 1,6-bisphosphate is going to be converted into fructose 2,6-bisphosphate because PFK2 is on and FBPAS2 is off. So you make lots of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, right? Lots of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, as we covered over here, is going to bind to PFK1 and stimulate this reaction. It's going to stimulate glycolysis and inhibit nucleogenesis. So cells are going to be burning that glucose. On the other hand, if glucagon levels are up, right, you're starving, okay? We talked a bit a little bit last class, this concern that when you're starving and glucose levels drop, the, cri the crisis for the cell or the body is keeping blood glucose levels high, right? So we don't necessarily, when gluc glucose levels go down, we don't want to be burning glucose, especially in the liver, we want to be making glucose to keep glucose levels high, you're going to go into a coma, okay? So when glucagon levels are high, cyclic AMP levels go up, this PKA, the cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase, is going to phosphorylate PFK2. Now, this part of the enzyme is on, this part of the enzyme is off. You're not going to make fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. You're going to make, or there's going to be a lack of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. And so as a result, this activation of PFK1 is not going to happen. You're not going to be making fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. It's going to go the other way. We're going to be trying to make glucose for the purpose of keeping blood glucose levels up such that you don't die from, from low, blood glucose. low blood glucose. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think actually PFK1 and, and, and the phosphatase are also. So this is PFK1 fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase 1. One of these subunits is for the kinase reaction, and one of these subunits is for the phosphatase reaction. And then there's an also a PFK2 fructose 2,6-bisphosphatase 2 complex. And they basically are presumably together because when you want one on, you want the other one off. And when you want the other one off, you want one off, you want the other one on. So by controlling both of them in the same enzyme, you're basically, you know, really toggling a switch as to which way you want glycolysis to go. Yeah. Yeah. In a fashion, it's both. I'm not sure which subunit it is. sense or more sense <laughs> so you want to think of of pfk2 fbpase 2 as this enzyme that's going to make fructose 26 bisphosphate in response to insulin or glucagon and that is going to turn pfk1 on or off and pfk1 fbpase 1 being which side of that is on or off is going to be helping control whether you're going down into glycolysis or up into gluconeogenesis. So that takes well into this one. We've kind of already covered a lot of, uh, well, we've covered one of the steps of gluconeogenesis. 
right? So here's gluconeogenesis. We just covered about this. So, you know, we talked about how, as well in the last lecture, this idea of kind of balancing glucose and glycolysis and gluconeogenesis, right? There are times when you're fasting, times when, you're, when you've had a meal and you want to be favoring one reaction or the other. In terms of whether you're doing glycolysis to gluconeogenesis, if you remember, the delta Gs for a lot of these reactions were basically close to zero. Not, the, not necessarily the delta G not prime. Under standard conditions, they're not necessarily close to zero. But a lot of these reactions, under cellular conditions, the delta G is close to zero. And so for those reactions, the ones that don't have uh, these uh, blue enzymes added, for those ones, like these guys in here, it's all just about each reaction being relatively reversible. So, for example, 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate to 3-phosphoglycerate is relatively reversible. So if you want to go this way, it can go that way. If you want to go the other way, it can go the other way too. But there are three reactions that are not reversible. One of them we just talked about. PFK1 going to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. There's a typo in there. Is it? No. And the reverse reaction is bisphosphatase. The reactions are not very different. They're not so complicatedly different. But they're not equivalent, right? It's the same one up here when we did glucose to glucose 6-phosphate. For glucose to glucose 6-phosphate, we took an ATP and put its phosphate on the glucose to make glucose 6-phosphate. The reverse reaction is not the same reaction. When we go back this way, we hydrolyze that phosphate off. We don't remake an ATP. So because it's not the same reaction, it's not reversible, even though both reactions are very exergonic. You basically use some of the power of ATP to put that phosphate onto glucose, and then that power of ATP that you use to put that phosphate onto glucose, you just waste it when you go backwards the other way. You just hydrolyze it off. And that so if you were to just do this, glucose to glucose 6-phosphate, and then glucose 6-phosphate back to glucose in a circle over and over and over again, you're not going to change your glucose levels or your glucose 6-phosphate levels. All you're going to be doing is burning ATP for, for no good reason. But it's this reaction down here where you actually need a very different path to do it just because, um, my thinking is that it's just because the drop in free energy between two phosphoenol, sorry, phosphoenol pyruvate and pyruvate is so precipitate. It's so big. It's like 60 kcals. So how do we do that? How do we back convert pyruvate to phosphoenol pyruvate. So this happens in two reactions. The first reaction, we go through an oxaloacetate intermediate. And we talked about that last class. Oxaloacetate is this kind of this convergence of citric acid cycle and gluconeogenesis, right? When you make oxaloacetate, depending on what you want to be doing, you can either spin oxaloacetate with acetyl-CoA to make citrate and do, go through citric acid cycle. Or you can go, if you want to be making glucose, instead of burning glucose, you go the other way. You're going to take oxaloacetate, you're going to burn an ATP, and you're going to take bicarbonate, which is effectively uh, CO2. And this is like aqueous CO2 in a fashion. You're going to take bicarbonate, and you're going to carboxylate pyruvate into the... So the pyruvate's a three-carbon compound. You're going to take the carboxylic acid group of bicarbonate, and you're going to carboxylate pyruvate into the four-carbon oxaloacetate. 
This is done by pyruvate carboxylase. And similar to many reactions we've covered in the course, this is a carboxylation. We are putting a carbon on to a carbon skeleton, and so it needs biotin. There's a, this enzyme has the same uh, cofactor and probably a very similar biotin binding site as, uh, which one was it? Were we making ketone bodies, I think, or something like that? Last class, the class before, we actually zoomed in on what the biotin region of the enzyme looks like. It's a completely different enzyme, but it also needs biotin to do this. So we're taking our one carbon and our three carbon compound, making a four carbon compound. That's the first step. And we had to burn in ATP to do that. Carboxylations are not energetically favored reactions. Then we're going to burn uh, a second NTP. In this case, it's a GTP. So it's interesting. Often it's ATP you need, but in this case, it's a GTP. We're going to take oxaloacetate. And we're going to do this PEP carboxykinase. We're going to split off that CO2, okay, and take the phosphate from GTP and put it onto the remaining carbon skeleton to make phosphorylenol pyruvate again. And once you've made phosphorylenol pyruvate, now you can go back up through glycolysis to remake glucose. Okay. So we basically, we do a carboxylation and then we take that carboxylic acid right off again. But the energy associated with doing that is used to basically make this very high-energy compound. So we had to burn two ATPs to do it, which just makes sense. An ATP, sorry, we had to burn an ATP and a GTP to do that. Each NTP hydro, hydrolysis reaction is on the order of 30 kcals. It, you know, the hydrolysis of this phosphate off of PEP is about 60 kcals, so we basically paid to be able to do that. Yeah. I guess, I mean, it's the same carbon that comes on and comes off, right? See, that's why it's drawn in pink here. It comes on, and it comes off. Presumably that decarboxylation reaction, there's, there's a lot of energy that was spent to put that carbon group on. And if you remember also, when we take carbons off of pyruvate to make acetyl-CoA, off of alpha-ketoglutarate to make succinyl-CoA, there's a lot of, we're, ma we're, doing, we're making NADHs then. We're, we're doing a lot of, we're, we're doing reactions that require energy to do that. So there's an energy associated with decarboxylation. And that energy that you get by decarboxylating is you paid for it with an ATP hydrolysis and then you use it to promote again that uh, formation of this very, very unhappy three carbon compound with this, with this phosphate on it. When I say unhappy, it's, it's the, the free energy of hydrolysis is very, very high. But if you, you can probably see that if you go through the other reactions we've covered where we do decarboxylations. That's pyruvate dehydrogenase with oxaloacetate to make citrate. Sorry, pyruvate dehydrogenase to make acetyl-CoA and then um, alpha-ketoglutarate into succinyl-CoA. 6 to a 5 and a 5 to a 4. Sorry, a 3 to a 2 and a 5 to a 4. In, in Krebs cycle, that um, decarboxylation event helps pay, remember that 
very high energy thioester we talked about with respect to the coenzyme A. That decarboxylation helps pay to put that thioester on for both pyruvate to acetyl-CoA and alpha-ketoglutarate to succinyl-CoA. But now we're not paying by making a thioester. We're paying to make PEP. Yeah. No, when you're starving, you're going to be getting your, you, you want, you're making gluconeogenesis to keep glucose levels high because your bloodstream glucose levels have to, there's a, there's, a, there's a real emphasis to keep it up. And then as you're starving, you're more likely going to be getting, you're not going to be living the energy you live on is not going to be coming from burning glucose. It's going to be coming from burning your fat stores. So your fat stores, through beta-oxidation, are going to be making acetyl-CoA. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is there what? Sorry? How do you get pyruvate? How do you get pyruvate? Yeah. I mean, um, it's very hard to make pyruvate. Um, that's why you have this struggle of, this is what I'm saying, it's, it's, it, you can't really go from, you can cheat a bit, but you can't really go from acetyl-CoA, which is coming from your fats, back up into pyruvate, and then into oxaloacetate to go back up to glucose. You can't really do that. Um, and so to keep those glucose levels high, your options are, like I said, you need pyruvate, and you can't get it from acetyl-CoA. You can get it from amino acids. You can take the carbon skeletons of amino acids and put them into pyruvate to keep glucose levels high. But that's wasting. That your body's literally wasting away, right? And so to kind of, um, to kind of, lessen the m negative impact of that, your body also tries to run on these ketone bodies, right? Otherwise, you would really have to take all your amino acids. And if, you could, if your brain could only run on glucose, and you can't get glucose from your fat stores, the only place you can get glucose from is your amino acids, then we'd have a real problem, you know? Then, but because you can also run, to a certain extent, on ketone bodies, you get around that a bit. Your body can run on the fat stores. Your muscles run on fat stores. A lot of your cells in your body runs on your fat stores. So it's not a problem for them. It's really only a problem for the brain. It's the brain that can't run on the fat. And it's the brain that needs the high glucose levels. So that's what makes it complicated. Oh, we're chugging along. Mm. Ah, okay, well, I'm going to do a new recycle then now.
So I'm gonna ask us I'm gonna ask you to do like specific questions so that I don't necessarily talk at length more than I have to. Alright, so who asked about your recycle? Who asked about your recycle? Yeah. What's your question? Okay, you just kinda want me to go over it again? Okay, sure. Um, so I'll try to get through it relatively quickly, or at least I'll try to emphasize the things that I think are important. So, um, number one, it takes place in the liver, right? You're going to be getting rid of your um, excess nitrogen in the liver. Uh, it's going to be, this is what you're going to be making at the end, urea, right? It's this two nitrogen molecule that then gets passed and you excrete through the kidney. Uh, one thing that we talk a little bit about is this uh, idea of where do the nitrogens come from. We talked a little bit about our energy currencies, right? Or sorry, nitrogen currencies in, in cells, and it's usually glutamine and glutamate, right? So we've got glutamine that's floating through the bloodstream. It comes in the, through the liver. You've got amino acids that get converted into glutamate using amino transferases, and that gives you carbon skeletons, right? So basically, at this point, you've got glutamate in the liver, which can split off its nitrogen to give alpha-ketoglutarate. Here's that nitrogen, and it gets put on to this carbon skeleton to make this carbon phosphate. You don't even know the structure of it, but you should understand that one of the nitrogens that you're going to be using to split off urea comes from this carbon phosphate. Okay? Uh, and to make carbon phosphate, you need to burn two ATPs to make two ADPs, okay? So that's one of our um, sources of this nitrogen, okay? That nitrogen that gets passed through a variety of intermediates, it picks up a second nitrogen from aspartic acid. And there's many ways to get aspartic acid. You can get it, there can be high levels of aspartic acid. You can do an amino transferase reaction from glutamine or glutamate to make aspartic acid. But the point is you have aspartic acid and that comes into the cycle down through here and joins its nitrogen. Remember, if you, after you take off aspartic acid, you're going to make oxaloacetate again. So after you deaminate aspartic acid, it takes its nitrogen and now you've got this two carbon compound for which is, which is very complicated and, and long and I don't want you to necessarily remember it, except that it eventually gets metabolized, it gets moved around through various intermediates into arginine. Once you've made arginine, you split off the end of the R group of arginine to make urea. So the end of arginine, the R group of arginine, looks like urea. And you just lop it off, and that's urea. And then you have the remaining carbon skeleton, which can go through the cycle again. So the carbon skeletons, the names of all these intermediates, I don't want you to necessarily focus on too much, except that you're getting your nitrogens in general from glutamine, glutamate, and aspartic acid. The glutamine glutamate ones up here become, there's this one intermediate that we talked about a little bit, this carbamoyl phosphate. It has one nitrogen. The other nitrogen comes from aspartic acid. When you made carbamoyl phosphate, you burn 2-ATP. When you put the nitrogen from aspartic acid into the cycle, you burned an ATP into an AMP. The ATP came in here and you split off AMP down here. So the number of phosphates that you used to make one molecule of urea 
you did two ATPs to one, two ADPs, and one ATP to one AMP, so the total number of phosphates is four, okay? Two, two here, and two here. And that's, the, I, I, that's enough. If you're super keen, I encourage you to go back and memorize it all, but I'm not gonna, I think at that level is sufficient. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that should be your guideline for the studying in general. What I cover is, you may have differences of, of opinion as to how much I covered in class, but it's rare that I take something that was on a slide that I didn't talk about at all. That's, what burn, that's, what, that's how we got burned a little bit on, the, on that question on the midterm that I dropped. So that whole molten globule thing, I would have talked about that at length if I had given that class. But because Dr. Pircher didn't, people bombed it, and we dropped it. In general, you should use what I talk about in class as your primary guide for what to study. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Proteins are always, proteins have half-lives like anything else in a living system. Some proteins are very stable, some get turned over very quickly. And so as you're turning over proteins, your amino acid stores are going to go up. Sometimes you need them, sometimes you don't. There's no such thing as bad nitrogen, it doesn't go off. But, but you do turn proteins over and in that normal cycle you may find that you're under particular conditions in particular tissue where you have too much nitrogen than you need. Do you know what I mean? Kind of. <laughs> All right, CRISPR. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a, we talked about this reaction glutamine to glutamate is the loss of the amido nitrogen from glutamine. We actually showed a slide about that reaction. Um, that's one way you can make, and the versatile reaction is one way, this is one way you make glutamate and glutamine versus one, one versus the other. So this is that glutaminase, this is the transfer of the amido nitrogen, this is the amino transferase, this is a standard amino transferase going from glutamate to aspartate. So loss of its, all oh right, so we actually covered this reaction, did we? So glutamate to uh, we could do an amino transferase reaction where we take glutamate and we take its amino group off and we have its remaining carbon skeleton to make alpha ketoglutarate. And then we have to put that amino group on something. We put it on oxaloacetate to make aspartic acid. So we could do an amino transferase reaction and we actually covered this glutamate dehydrogenase reaction back here, I thought. Yeah, glutamate dehydrogenase. So we can do a dehydrogenase reaction in which we actually have am ammonium that comes off. Instead of it being transferred onto another carbon skeleton, it actually comes off as ammonium. And then that can be put onto 
you still get alpha ketoglutarate, but you didn't put that nitrogen on another amino acid. So this is formerly a dehydrogenase reaction, and that ammonium gets put on to carbamyl phosphate in a reaction we didn't cover the specifics for. So CRISPR, is there, who asked about CRISPR? Is there a specific question or you just don't get the whole thing? All right. Um, so from first principles, this is a bacterial immune system. It's a way for the bacteria to remember which viruses it has been infected by. In red is a virus that's currently infecting the cell, here. These green and yellow boxes and refer to the memory of previous infections. Okay, so when a virus infects a cell, one of a few things can happen. Most of the time, the virus will lyse the cell. It'll kill it. So that's no good, no fun. But sometimes the, it's a suboptimal infection or just the elements of chance. You know, if it kills one out of a million bacteria, well, then that means that, sorry, if it kills all but one out of a million bacteria, there is still one that may do. It got, got through it, survived. What will happen is if that virus doesn't kill the cell, the cell has enzymes that will take the viral DNA and chop it up, recognize it as foreign, and insert it into what's called the CRISPR locus. It's a part of the E. coli chromosome, if we're talking about E. coli, or, um, the, the, it's, a strep, it's a strep species that is the one that is most commonly talked about when we talk about CRISPR, but the point is, okay, so the bacteria will take some of the viral DNA and integrate some of that viral DNA into this site on its chromosome. And the viral DNA sequences are flanked or bordered by these diamonds, these black diamonds. The black diamonds are put in by uh, the bacteria to say this is the, you know, the black diamond is not the viral DNA. This is, all these black sequences are the same sequence. And it's saying the viral DNA is the stuff between the black sequences. Okay, so it's basically a, a mark or a border for where the viral DNA sequence starts and ends. And so basically you've got this locus that's got these common sequences interspersed, that's what the I stands for, interspersed by the viral sequences. What happens is there's a promoter here which transcribes the whole locus. And so it makes this big long RNA and the black sequences turn into these hairpins, right? They're common and they're, they've evolved to make hairpins in RNA. And there are other cast genes that are part of the same kind of region of the chromosome these cast genes are proteins that are going to basically run, this, run, the, run the immune system. One of them recognizes these hairpins and makes cuts there. So one of these cast genes is made, runs along, cuts these, this big long locus into these individual regions, these individual RNAs. Another one of the cast genes, Cas9 famously, recognizes those cut hairpin genes and gets loaded up with it. A little bit similar to how RISC gets loaded up with the guide RNA, Cas9 gets loaded up with these CRISPR RNAs. Okay? 
And at that point, they're just floating around the cell looking for DNA that is complementary to that guide RNA. If a phage that has previously, in a previous lifetime of that bacteria, uh, the great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of this bacteria was infected by the green phage, turquoise phage? Green phage. Um, well, then its great-great-great-great-great-grandchild will have this Cas9 floating around with that sequence in this CRISPR RNA. And when that green phage infects again, it's going to be recognized. The Cas9 is going to say, hey, this DNA that's new to my cell is exactly complementary to this RNA that I know came from a previous phage, and so I know it's bad. And so at that point, Cas9 cuts the, in, the incoming phage DNA. And when double-stranded DNA is cut in places where it's not supposed to be, it gets degraded. Right? Phage DNA has evolved to have ends that don't get degraded, but phage DNA has not evolved to have sequences in the middle of the phage DNA cut that are not degraded, right? And so, and so basically then this phage will be destroyed. The spacers, you mean the black ones or the, the green? Yeah, these are, vi these are viral DNA. Yeah, spacer. Okay, sorry, did I say it backwards? Probably. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And the sum of all the viral DNAs that are spaced between the repeats is effectively the sum of every phage that this line of bacteria has ever survived. Yeah. Yeah, that's how we use it. So when you put in a, so people have known for a long time that if you want to edit a genome, problem is the specificity of where you want to edit it. You know, if you just express a restriction enzyme in a mammalian cell, it's going to cut every 4,000 nucleotides. The whole genome is going to be shredded. If you want to edit one gene, how do you edit that one gene? How do you make a... We can do a lot of things once you make a cut. If you make a cut, then you're going to get double-strand break repair, and at a certain level, you're going to get mutations in that place. So if the goal of the CRISPR system is to make a mutant gene, that's easy. You just direct the cut into that gene. And at a certain rate, you're going to make, the, the, you're going to make a double-stranded break cut there. There's going to be nibbling on the ends. They're going to get smushed back together. And likely, when they get smushed back together, depending on where the cut was, now you've got a nonsense mutation there, and the gene is not functional. Or in addition to with a cut, you put in new DNA that's homologous to the ends. And you can now, that will get put in by homologous recombination. And now you've made a new gene that you, you didn't have before. You didn't just destroy the old gene. You made a super version of that gene, or who knows what. But the point is that the CRISPR technology allows you to go after that one spot, which we didn't, weren't able to do before. It's really easy to make wholesale cuts across the genome in a non-specific way. But this is directed. That's the, that's the exciting bit. People had shown before that if you manage to get a cut in one spot in the genome, you can do a lot of things. But that was not very efficiently done previously. 
This is like scalable, it's adaptable, you can multiplex it, you can do many at the same time, that's what that means. People are excited. They've done human embryos now. I don't know if you saw that. It came out a month ago in Nature. It was only a matter of time. Okay, so we activate fatty acids by, so we, the purpose of fatty acid activation is to get them into the mitochondria, okay? We activate them by hydrolyzing an ATP, okay? on this fatty acyl-CoA synthetase, and the end result of this is an acyl-CoA. So instead of a fatty acid with a carboxylic acid group on the end, it looks more like acetyl-CoA. It's a 16 carbon compound, say, also with a CoA on the end, right? And that marks it for transport, okay? There's this uh, intermediate in which the fatty acid is actually linked to an AMP, okay? So the fatty acid here has an adenosine on its end, the carboxylic acid group has an AMP on it, and then that AMP gets swapped for coenzyme A, right? So now we've got this activated fatty acyl-CoA in the cytoplasm. We then want to have the same thing in the mitochondria, and that's going to be the substrate for beta-oxidation, right? That's how we're going to take off our two carbons at a time to burn that fatty acid. The problem is acyl-CoAs are not transported across the membrane. So we transiently swap off that coenzyme A, and we put on this carnitine using carnitine acyl transferase 1. Now we have an acyl carnitine that gets transported across this transporter that's specific for that. On the other side, carnitine acyl transferase 2 does the reverse reaction. It takes off the carnitine and puts the acyl coy back on. So it's a little bit like the whole NADH malate aspartate shuttle thing. There's this intermediate that's used to bring it across the membrane, except in this case it's carnitine like. I'm not, I can't remember who asked the question. Yeah. Are we good? Okay. And elongation cycle of the ribosome. Was there a specific question about the elongation cycle? So I don't answer things like what you need to know. I think we've covered it in class. If there's a specific thing that you'd like clarification on, uh, what you need to know is what was covered. We talked about these things. We talked about these things. We talked about the factors, certainly. We talked about mimicry down here. You should know certainly which factors do what. You don't need to draw it out, but we talked about polysomes, and that's it. We basically 
you should have an idea of which factors do what. That would be very important. And kind of the different stages. Yeah. Yes. Are you allowed, you are allowed a calculator, but not programmable. Please don't make us make difficult decisions about having a programmable calculator. Yeah. Cyclization of monosaccharides. Are there any other kind of, before I get into that, kind of more uh, can be done in 15 seconds questions? Yeah. The only equations you need to know are the ones that we covered. We did, say, a sample example in class. You will not be given the equations, but you will be given rate constants. So you, don't, you won't be given the Henderson-Hesselbach equation, but you don't need to memorize the Faraday constant. You know what I mean? I think there's maybe four equations that we've covered. Can I upload the clicker questions? Oh, that would be a pain. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, I guess. I have to type them out again. Yeah. Okay, yeah. We'll do um, one more. You've already had a question. We're, we're out of time. We're at, we're, I'm supposed to leave in three minutes. So uh, we'll do yours because you haven't asked one yet. And uh, we'll save. There will be online office hours. I'll do one tomorrow. And there will be more online office hours leading up to the final. So I want to make sure I'm in the right spot here. We talked about kind of in through here. Is there a specific one? Yeah. This one down here. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, your question is basically, why do you always have this carbon sticking up? I mean... I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Certainly for a six carbon ring, seven carbon rings, if you had a seven carb, if you didn't do this, you'd have a seven carbon ring. And seven carbon rings hysterically don't, aren't happy. So I think for, for, for a um, six carbon sugar, this makes sense. It should only do this. It shouldn't make a seven carbon ring. For a five carbon sugar, like ribose, so here's a five-membered ring, but it, and it does the same thing. In theory, that should be able to form a six-carbon ring, or a six-membered ring. And it's not clear to me exactly why, to be honest. I don't know. Sorry. 
No, we moved office hours today to Tuesday. Yeah. All right, everyone. So that's great. Um, good luck on the final. And uh, again, if uh, keep an eye on the Moodle for the online office hours. We'll have one tomorrow. And again, before the final.